Because what you don't know about energy can kill you. Here's Alex Epstein. Welcome to Power Hour. I'm your host, Alex Epstein. Usually I'm doing this from Laguna Beach, but today I'm in an undisclosed location in Mexico. I think, Don, are you still in Pennsylvania? Still in Pennsylvania, Alex. And Stefan in Germany, as usual. That's correct. Okay, so the last couple of weeks I've done really long opening segments. I may continue that today, I may not. Uh, but I wanted to start out today with something I want to expand on. And this is a clip that I showed yesterday at a speech that I was giving to some executives in the oil and gas industry. And in particular, it was a speech about that industry's approach to persuasion and what I think should change about that approach. And toward the end of the speech, I showed an example of the exact opposite of what I think should be done. So I'm going to play that clip and then I'll, I'll comment on it. But the, the key context, which will probably come across pretty clearly, is that this is from BP, which is a major oil and gas company formerly known as British Petroleum. So just note that. Welcome to Fowler, Indiana, one of the windiest places in America and home to three BP wind farms. In the off chance the wind ever stops blowing here, the lights can keep on shining thanks to our natural gas, a smart partner to renewable energy that's always ready when needed or not. At BP, we see possibilities everywhere to help the world keep advancing. So, Don, if, if you were you know, younger and not exposed to the arguments that you're exposed to, what, what would you conclude from this commercial? I mean, what I'd conclude is that like wind is the power of the future and it needs to be supplemented by natural gas in those rare cases where it might not be blowing. What about you, Stefan? Yes, I, I would conclude that uh, BP is mostly building these super great wind farms and uh, they just need a li little help from natural gas every now and then. Or not. And then... <laughs> Yeah, or, or or not. Yeah, so the let's see, where where to to start with this thing. So I mean one thing to note is that this ad is false in that it, it's false in the implication certainly that BP is mostly wind or anything like that, but they're not really trying to say that. They're 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 trying to say we're doing innovation, but this this story of a city that's basically windy all the time in a way that's going to produce power almost continuously and then very rarely needs backup from natural gas, this is a false story. This does not exist. There's no situation in the world where you're mostly powered by wind and there's just an occasional lull. And it's very important that this is not a story that exists in the world because if that were the case, then we might make very different energy choices. So this is a, if the wind industry was putting this out, this would be a very big uh, and really fraudulent misrepresentation of the state of the world. And yet it's not a wind company that's doing it. It's, it's BP, which is overwhelmingly an oil and gas company. So BP is, is effectively lying on behalf of wind. Now, this is particularly dangerous because 
this narrative that wind and solar can power our lives in the way that we're used to and that it can power billions of other people's lives in the way that we're used to and they're not, this is a very destructive narrative because this narrative leads to things like the Green New Deal, which is trying to outlaw fossil fuels and nuclear power and doesn't even support hydropower. And the rationale or rationalization is, well, we can get all of our power from solar and wind. So this this can lead to very, very dangerous kinds of policy choices. So this would be a very, very bad thing for anybody to do. But it's perversely bad for an oil and gas company to do because their their real interest in the future just as a company is the ability to produce oil and gas to satisfy the massive demand for all of the the uh, results that that kind of energy can give people in terms of cheap, plentiful, reliable energy, whether it's portable energy, which oil is the best at, or whether it's different kinds of synthetic products, which both oil and gas are great at making all kinds of different plastics and other synthetic products, or whether it's having just very uh, flexible on-demand power, which natural gas is the best thing at. I mean, that their actual future is in producing energy that's really, really valuable to people and that that is characterized in part by its extreme reliability. So what they're doing is they're reinforcing the narrative, the false narrative that their industry is unnecessary. And this is part of a broader narrative that their industry is not just unnecessary, but evil. And this narrative often, in energy circles, it's sometimes called the transition narrative. I like to call it the extinction narrative. And it's the idea that we should and likely will radically reduce fossil fuel use, A, because it impacts the climate, and B, because it's rapidly replaceable by renewables. And by renewables, they mean solar and wind. So this is this is the narrative that is fundamentally threatening this industry and really threatening humanity. And yet this industry is continuously, uh, well, BP, I should say, is an example. It's an extreme example of of a phenomenon that I talked about at my speech yesterday, which is that the industry is continuously conceding the narrative. So they're conceding this extinction narrative. And the usual approach, the usual approach historically, because this narrative has been around for decades, the usual approach has actually been to say nothing. And the idea has been, well, if we say nothing, you know, Oh, okay, all these people can talk and have their narratives, but they still need us. And that that need was supposed to be a protection. And then on top of that need, there's maybe even a benefit. Maybe if we affirm this narrative that we don't really believe, then maybe we'll get some PR points. We might win some advertising awards, or we might get some favor if they start trying any kinds of restrictions. So this is the viewpoint that it's, this is a more fundamental viewpoint the, the more fundamental perspective on this that businesses often have is that we don't need to take ideas seriously, that we can either ignore ideas or we can just superficially endorse popular ideas and there will be no price to pay and there's only gain to be had. And what I told the audience yesterday was that if anything hasn't proved if this wasn't already proved to be a disastrous strategy slash non-strategy, the Green New Deal should completely uh, should completely prove that it's the worst strategy ever to concede the narrative. Because what's happened is one side puts forward a narrative that says you should be extinct 
and then you agree with it either by not challenging it or by actively affirming it. And then guess what? People believe you should be extinct, which means they don't really need you. So guess what? They're going to pass policies on the idea that they don't need you. And they're going to convince a lot of people that they don't need you. And this is what the industry is experiencing in all kinds of forms. They have investors who now believe, oh, the oil and gas industry has no future. And then there are all kinds of political people who believe, well, that industry has no future, so no problem in outlawing it. There's only upside to outlawing it. And then when they're recruiting people, well, if the people believe the industry has no future, that's going to make it hard to recruit. And then your existing employee base, that's going to make it hard to motivate them. And even when somebody sues you, well, if you believe this is a bad industry that has no legitimate future, then you're going to be more inclined to be pro lawsuit against them. And if there's some issue with a community, like, should we drill in this community? Well, if the community believes that you have no future, then what's the community? Their inclination is going to be, yeah, let's, let's not have this antiquated negative practice in our community. So the, the fundamental narrative about the industry shapes a whole set of negative experiences for the industry that are also negatives for the rest of us. And my goal yesterday was to give them a way of changing the narrative, of questioning the narrative first, and then changing the narrative. And I call that arguing to 100. So maybe next week, I'll talk a little bit more about what arguing to 100 is positively. But for this week, I thought I'd just share this issue of conceding the narrative and why that is so destructive and why that narrative has to be challenged and changed by everyone. But it's particularly egregious that the oil and gas industry is promoting what I believe is, is a deeply wrong narrative, this transition or extinction narrative. Alex, um, you sort of touched on this, but what are your thoughts? It's like, why are they conceding it? Because it seems like when you put it that way, it seems crazy to do. And yet it's like super widespread. Well, what, because I, I talked about a little bit that it's viewed, so in general, there's just a contempt for ideas among people who think of themselves as practical. And I have a lot of sympathy for that because most people in the realm of ideas are very impractical and have ideas that are useless or worse than useless. But nevertheless, ideas in the sense of having really ultimately principles about the world, whether in the form of values or whether in the form of principles of action that help us achieve our values, those are crucial to life to have. And then having ones that help your life versus hurt your life is very important. So there's this general, but, but because that realm is not acknowledged, people as incredibly powerful in the world and necessary in the world, when, when you don't take that realm seriously, then you're very much at the mercy of powerful but bad ideas. And so with something like the extinction narrative, what will happen is most people will say in the industry will say, well, okay, nobody can really take that seriously. That obviously has a lot of stuff wrong with it. And they're right, but they don't feel the need to really correct it. And then certainly not have a positive narrative of their own. It feels like, well, there's a protection because people need our product. And that's just a fact, but actually need is very based on ideas. Your idea of what you need in life is an idea. And, you know, some people don't even think they need to live. And then do you need to be happy? Do you need this certain level? It's, it's not like this need is just this exact quantity of thing. And then even if it was, you don't even know what you need necessarily in terms of energy. And you don't specifically, you don't know what kind of energy is going to provide it. And those 
those questions themselves have to deal with ideas. So the general contempt for ideas, making people in business abandon the realm of ideas, and then they're abandoning abandoning it to very powerful ideas that are anti-business and I think ultimately anti-human. But then there are certain people within the businesses who think, well, actually, of course, we're not going to challenge the ideas, but maybe we can benefit from these kinds of superficial things. Because maybe if we say something in this direction, then maybe we'll get some sort of support. The other thing I should say, which I didn't say before, is that when you don't take ideas seriously, you're not very precise about ideas. As so when somebody says, oh, there's a, you know, we need to transition off fossil fuels or fossil fuels should be extinct. People will just say, oh, nobody really believes that. And But if you don't believe anyone believes anything, if you don't take ideas seriously, then you can be really super, th then you're okay being superficial because nothing really means anything. So sure, yeah, I support transition. What's the big deal? And, and often people think, yeah, there's some truth to that. We don't want to be using fossil fuels forever. So part of it is, People who concede ideas will often find themselves sloppily agreeing with them. And every bad idea has elements of plausibility. So you can always sloppily agree and say, oh, well, I care about the environment and I don't want the climate to be bad and et cetera, et cetera. So I think that's another, that's another element. So fundamentally, what I think the solution is, is to take ideas very seriously, which includes taking them precisely. And when there's a set of ideas that's opposing something that you think is really important, do not swallow any of it. Really question it. And I mean, think of ideas, think of taking in and maybe even voicing an idea as, as like taking in an unknown substance. You know, you really want to vet a new substance that you put in your body. Well, you should definitely vet a new substance that you put in your mind or that you put in other people's minds, particularly if you have a big megaphone. So it's BP is spreading poison and they're not thinking about it. Stefan, I know that you had something you wanted to say about last week's story on the Tesla battery. So why don't we start with that? Yeah, so a bit of housekeeping. Um, so in previous, in the two previous powers, actually we talked about Tesla's largest battery in the world and how it would, uh, how, it was, how it was supposed to help South Australia with the blackout issues they experienced over the recent years. Um, and one uh, remaining open question was, with what precision... Uh, specifically, a New York Times article talked about this battery and its uh, capabilities. And uh, so I just want to read three quotes from that article that should clarify it. Um, so one is, debate over the battery's potential has become intense. Rega and then later on, regardless, experts say the moment of disruption is here. And then they quote uh, Scott Morrison, who at the, at the time was uh, treasurer, in Australia, and I think he's now prime minister. Uh, and he said, 30,000 South Australian households could not get through watching one episode of Australia's Ninja Warrior with this big battery. And so that's which is, a, which is a great quote. But it, it I, I, I assume these are in order. Is that right? Yeah, they are in order. They yeah, because the way I remember in high school journalism, we learned that you know, journalistic writing is different from other types of writing. 
in that you put the most, the, the view is the most important things go first. Whereas in, in other kinds of writing, you can't really think of it that way because if you're, say, building up an idea, you're saying this idea is true, really every part of it is crucial to establishing the idea. But because journalism is just claiming to report on the world, it's really just giving you the most important details first and then the least important details later. So the I like how it's a detail that experts say the moment of disruption is here, regardless of the specific nature of this battery. And it turns out, if you read later, the claim that it cannot have even power 30,000 households watching one hour of a TV show, the moment of disruption is here. That's a good, that's a good refrain. It's like, uh, it would just be like saying, uh, regardless of how much how much money I lost last year, my the moment of success is here. Like no, the whole, the whole thing is the moment of disruption is an example of that's a that's an abstract idea that needs a lot of validation. So if the one example that you have invalidates it, then the moment is not here. Yeah, I also want to add like I can read the entire article because it's too long, of course. But so they had this, you know. Critics say this and advocates say this, but the, you know, the experts say the, the moment of disruption is here. And so they said, they set this up like something, okay, politicians are fighting over this, but uh, you have this uh, 30,000 South Australian households, which, you know, nobody, probably nobody reading the New York Times has any context to like what percentage of the population is this and so on. So I think South Australia has 1.7 million uh, uh, citizens and uh, it's 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 a hint at that this battery is not going to solve any blackout issues but it's a very obscure way of you know conveying that fact so it's almost as if someone wants to get away with technically not lying i think one service that we can provide the world with this show and i try to think of it in my other work too is just to cause people to have a lot of, um, have a really good filter when it comes to sources in the mainstream knowledge system. And I mean, in any knowledge system and part of having a good filter is just the recognition that even institutions with a lot of prestige do very non-objective and sometimes dishonest things. So I just encourage people to keep in mind when you see something in the New York times, Keep in mind this kind of distortion where the reality has been completely misrepresented. And then one other, one idea I, I read about a couple months ago, maybe I was rereading Jurassic Park, which I had not read since maybe I was 13 or 14. And I was interested in, oh, no, wait, I'm sorry. It wasn't Jurassic Park. I, I, that, that's what got me back into Crichton. But then I started reading State of Fear, which I'm still early on in. But I was interested in some of the essays he had. And I might be getting the name wrong, but he has... Crichton has this really good point about, he calls it something like the Murray Gell-Mann um, idea. And, and Murray was some sort of scientist, and I apologize for maybe butchering the name and then not having the exact profession. But the idea was he observed, according to Crichton, that when you know about a lot about a subject, you read the newspaper and you think, oh, well, this is just totally wrong. Like, How could they distort this? And then you read the rest of the paper and you think, oh yeah, well, this is, yeah, of course this is happening in foreign policy. And of course this is happening in domestic policy. Well, that seems perfectly reasonable. And so just 
given that when, when you hear people who really know about something, they will almost invariably criticize the mainstream knowledge sources, which shows that there are fundamental methodological problems with those on those issues, but it strongly indicates there are those problems on other issues, particularly when the, they're trying to quote unquote report on very abstract questions, which is a, that's a general vice in journalism where journalists for a whole host of reasons, I think, think that they can just report the truth about very complex issues, but they can report it the same as if they were to say, oh, well, JFK got shot yesterday. And then Australia had a moment, what was it? Australia had a moment of disruption with batteries yesterday. Like those are considered the same thing. And when you consider those the same thing, when you, when you treat ideas that require a lot of proof as if they're just direct observations that a journalist can make, then you are completely vulnerable to false ideas and to accepting them uncritically. So just some thoughts about processing news or claims to news or claims to about ideas in the so-called news. Okay, Don, what's the first story you want to talk about this week? So this is on the Green New Deal, and it's in particular how, how the Green New Deal has changed the debate over policy. And... Um, so like a standard negotiation tactic is that you start with demands that are unrealistic, but that sets the terms for the negotiation so that your hope is that you're going to end up far ahead of where you would have been had you started with a more realistic starting point. And so one way to think about the consequences of the Green New Deal is that it has already moved the terms of the debate, that instead of the Greens you know, proposing the most politically viable form of restricting fossil fuels or promoting wind and solar, they've proposed the most radical. And now as a result, previously radical seeming policies are starting to be seen as moderate. So for example, Dianne Feinstein was uh, just had a resolution calling for net zero US emissions by 2050, which you know a year ago would have been like, you know, this is unrealistic. This is a big deal and everybody needs to fight it. And now it's like, oh, 2050, that's that's pretty good. Um, and uh, Tom Pyle, who's president of the conservative group, American Energy Alliance, he actually made a perception. I wouldn't, I wouldn't call them conservative. Uh, okay. I, I would call I, them free market, but. Okay, fair. Um, he made a pretty perceptive comment about this, which he said that the a danger of the Green New Deal is that it's giving other Republicans and other groups uh, some wiggle room to push forth less extreme options such as cap and trade and carbon taxes. So it's this idea of like, we've seen this Green New Deal, it's very scary, it's very radical. And now these Republicans who have been trying to, you know, do something that appears green and uh, allows them to position themselves as genuinely concerned about climate are now endorsing things that would have been political poison that were political poison, even for Democrats a decade ago. And, but he also went on to say this, which I thought was interesting. He said, quote, I appreciate the leadership of the Western caucus, which was the event he was at recognizing fighting this proposal, not coming up with an alternative. And what I take that to mean is that they're opposing the green new deal by saying no to it rather than saying, not the Green New Deal, let's do cap and trade or carbon taxes. And I think that's 
a real mistake. Like the choice is not oppose the Green New Deal or compromise in its direction. It should be reframing the debate so that you have your own positive, what we would call your policy 100, your ideal policy. Because if you have your own policy, then your people are no longer judging the everything by the opponent's policy. It's not is this you know less aggressive or less radical than the Green New Deal. It's all right. Here's something that we think is good, and the Green New Deal would be the complete opposite of this. Uh, I I agree with your analysis totally, and it's it's scary. I'm thinking a lot about how to counter this. One thing is that if any of our listeners are really involved, if you're really connected on the policy end, or if you just have a lot of resources where you're dealing with this stuff, uh, definitely reach out to us because it's the kind of thing where our team is particularly good with helping with message creation on this kind of thing. There is really a positive narrative that's necessary. It's just a question of how does one go about not just crafting that, but uh, disseminating it. But I, I totally agree with with your analysis of what's going wrong and and all the specific examples of how it's it's shifting. And we could think about what are what are other you know, what are other ways to think of it. But I, you you were just when you mentioned Feinstein's thing, I thought, well, why doesn't have somebody have a goal that you know two billion more people have energy by the year twenty fifty? Like that sounds like a goal. Or what about you know, the eradication of poverty by 20, that would be a good goal. And then that, you know, that would like universal human prosperity by 2050. And then you can point out, well, if we have universal human prosperity, then pretty much no matter what happens with climate, people will be okay. And so that, that might be the way to go is because one thing, this is an undeveloped idea of mine, but when it comes to framing things in energy, you can sometimes talk about, okay, well, what's the best form of energy? But ultimately, energy is a means to an end. So often it's best to focus on an an even higher level goal, like something like universal prosperity by 2050, and then talk about how to get there. And that part of it is global energy abundance, but global energy abundance as a means to that end. So maybe we just came up with it here. So I'm happy with that as a start. Stefan, what, what's your next story? So my next story is about the greening of the planet and uh, China and India's role in it. So a new uh, study um, came out and was in a press release by NASA. And it reveals that over the uh, last two decades, the planet has substantially increased the green leaf area as observed by satellite imagery. And... Um, so this is the this was the equivalent of uh, the area covered by all of the Amazon rainforests. So that's pretty substantial, about five percent uh, of increase in green leaf area. And interestingly, China and India are estimated to be responsible for about one third of the increase, and not by CO two fertilization, but by intensified agriculture and reforestation efforts. So China in particular has planted a lot of trees and uh, India has made progress in intensifying agriculture, meaning, of course, you can harvest more crops per acre of land. And uh, this leaves a lot of uh, room for forests to regrow. So other countries that have uh, increased their leaf area 
are in the uh, European Union, Canada, Russia, Australia, uh, also the United States and Mexico. Um, and this is different from a previous study that I think was uh, published in 2016, which attributed a lot of the leaf area growth since 1980, uh, or 1981 rather, um, to CO2 fertilization and increased warming and a bit of increased rainfall. So I don't know if the new study uh, corrects that a little bit, but it, there, there's some time overlap between the two studies. But the recent growth is uh, specifically attributed uh, at least by 33% to the Chinese and Indian efforts to, uh, on probably not really efforts, but China at least has uh, done some reforestation work. And I find this a very positive message because it means beyond the, what nature gives us, it's our environment is under our control to a much greater extent than many people think. So we can, if we want forest area and we think that's healthy for us and our environment as humans in the service of human flourishing, we can actively pursue that. And we have far greater control over what our environment looks like. So in, in, instead of this super pollute, polluted area, large parts of China now grow more forests than before. So this story strikes me as generally true, but I, I should say that when I hear and, and important and part of the reason it does is because I know some of the mechanics involved as, and I know the, how CO2 relates to plant growth. And I know that you know, industrialization is adding more CO2 to the atmosphere. And then I also know the mechanics of, or some of them of, you know, how we can control our environment, including things like forests. But when I hear the term study, I cringe because there's just this refrain all the time. Study shows this study says that. And it, it actually relates to my point earlier about journalism where people just think, Oh, well, journalism is just reporting reality. Study often means to people, Oh, well, they just, they're just observing the facts who could argue with that. They're just studying. And in reality, so many studies that are cited are actually speculation and they're, often very wild and inaccurate speculation. So I'm curious, Stefan, when you're consuming different things that claim to be studies and that have that authoritative mantle to them, how do you process them to try to distinguish those that are that, that really did demonstrate a point well versus those that are saying something that's extremely speculative or unlikely? Yeah, obviously details matter. So, so study, the word has, uh, has a bad reputation with me because there are so many just claims that are sold as facts. In this case, particularly, uh, it's of course bound to the empirical fact that the leaf area as observed by satellites, that's an objective measurement by a satellite instrument. Now there's some you know, uncertainty involved, of course, but it's, it's largely difficult to cheat and there's no real incentive to cheat. And uh, so the attribution in the case of China and India also sounds uh, pretty sound or solid because, you know, they have some kind of record how many trees have been planted over by specific programs over that area and how much the Indian agriculture actually has improved in productivity. So this, this sounds very solid. Of course, you have always have to be concerned with, you know, what's really in the realm of attribution, 
what's really speculation and what is hard fact. So we've talked about this in with pollution and also with the climate issue. There's always this tendency to report something like a model projection as a true fact. So, for example, often we hear something like, oh, we know this percentage of uh, warming over the last like five decades uh, is attributed to human emissions, for example. And that comes from comparing model projections that don't use CO2 as an input and model projections that use CO2 input. And these models are tuned to take CO2 as a central player in warming. So you are not, uh, you know, testing a hypothesis against a sort of uh, empirical testing in a laboratory, but you are sort of comparing two model results and you, you don't know whether that model is actu actually accurate. So there, there's a big difference in quality between these, of course. I'm glad I asked. I like, I like those points. I like that you're mentioning that, I mean, the way I take it is one, one point is that you're, you're looking at different claims and then you're integrating with things that you have confidence in already, or maybe with things that you don't have confidence in and seeing maybe sometimes it's, you see, oh, wow, this is, this is based on this kind of method that I don't have confidence in, but in this case, integrating with, with knowledge that you have confidence in. And then what was the other one? Oh yeah. And, and also is understanding the nature of the evidence, including by what means it was collected. So I, I like both of those and that those sound like two, two valuable guidelines. Don, what's your next story? Well, believe it or not, I actually wanted to ask Stefan about a study. Uh, or actually, so there's two reports, one from NASA and one from uh, the NOAA released uh, recently where they're concluding that last year was the fourth hottest year on record and that the past five years have been the hottest on record. And there, here's just two of the sort of high-level points that they stressed during 2018, the average temperature across global land and ocean surfaces was 1.4 degrees Fahrenheit above the 20th century average. And then um, according to the report, warming is accelerating. So it's the annual global land and ocean temperature has increased at an average rate of 0.13 degrees Fahrenheit per decade since 1880. However, since 1981, the average rate of increase is more than twice that rate. And so um, one thing that I wanted to ask you about, Stefan, so I, this is, you know, this was reported in all of the newspapers and like New York Times, I think it was in the Wall Street Journal. And my, what wasn't clear from looking at these or from even glancing at like the homepage of NASA was do we know how accurate these measurements are both for the 20th century and today? And then is this, or is this not consistent with mild and manageable warming? Like, is this confirmation of runaway warming because it's presented in the newspapers, not as like, this is consistent, but like, this is definitive. Like, look, we're seeing the warming and it's going to get insanely worse if we don't do anything about it. So I'm curious uh, what your take is on on this? Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna just jump in for one second just to address part of this, which because there's the part of this that's just 
horrible methodologically if, if taken on its own. So what, what you're mentioning is there's warming at an average rate of 0.13 since 1880. So what is that? That's basically a 140 year time period. And then since 1981, so what, a 37-year time period, it's more than twice that rate. And so the question I would ask is, well, can you find another time period where there's also, of that length, where there's also that rate? And why did you take 81? Because what if you had taken the 70s when it was cooling? Well, that's interesting. Then it would have, when they thought there was going to be a new ice age, then it wouldn't be so dramatic. And I'll bet if you took a certain part of the early 1900s, particularly where you have the 30s and 40s and you have warming, then it would be an alarming increase, uh, which is part of the reason why people in the 30s and 40s were alarmed by warming and then later were alarmed by cooling. So this just, uh, that's just, that's just the kind of thing I, I, I'm just bringing that up because there's something that just in the raw methodology of it, particularly when you're dealing with pretty small time amounts in the first place, these are very small amounts of time in certain senses. Uh, the more you say, oh, well, during this long period, there was this trend, but during this short period, there was a bigger trend. Well, of course, a longer term trend is going to have a bunch of variation. So that's, that's just my quick observation. Stefan, uh, go ahead. Yeah. So uh, to answer Alex's question first, uh, yes, you can cherry pick another time period. And I did. <laughs> and uh, so I just... I just made a very crude, quick calculation before the show, and I found the time period like I think 1904 to 1944, which, uh, using my bogus methodology, uh, actually produces a slightly higher uh, rate of warming in the uh, NASA GISTEMP data set for for surface temperature. So it's a it's a slightly higher rate. <clears throat> Obviously, this is wrong. I would have to need. Uh, I would have to smooth the decadal rate and, and so on. I didn't have time for that. But of course, you can cherry pick start and end points like that. And so in particular, I want to mention that uh, so 2018 was still impacted by the recent El Nino spike, which is sort of a climate pattern that uh, every now and then comes up in the South Pacific and then impacts uh, global temperatures by creating a temporary warming spike. And this, according to NASA, is a natural phenomenon. Uh, so it doesn't seem to be impacted by by global warming or, or human impacts of any kind that we can, we can um, attribute to this. And so, yeah, we are essentially at a high point in a recent trend that went over several decades. And if you pick that area like 1981 you could have picked like 1975 as well so in the late 1970s it went up the temperature went up again and before that there was a stagnating to cooling phase since the late 1940s so you can see that if you if you cherry pick this last leg of the trend then you might see a relatively high rate of warming but it's it's not you cannot derive from that that we are in an accelerating world and project that into the future, which is of course sort of the goal of the press release. Um, yeah, so there's like start and end points using different periods, uh, not explaining the sort of semi-cyclical nature 
of uh, climate between you know warming phases and, and cooling phases and so on, then you can uh, can create this press release and say, well, this is this is like uh, the hottest moment on Earth, and and it will just accelerate into the future. One more point I want to make on this is so the hook for the story was oh the recent year was one of the top five hottest years ever, and that would be true regardless of magnitude and cause of the warming. So you could have said in like the year 1944, you could have said, well, the last three years were the hottest on record ever. Yeah, that, that would be true. And, uh, you know, even if it was completely natural warming and even if the trend wasn't that alarming. So like using this as an explanation of this is where we are is totally dishonest and totally misleading. And, and the layman can't understand anything from that. Just one, one comment on manageable, because you asked, is it still manageable? Now, there's questions about what's the relationship between temperature and other things, but just on its own terms, it's, it's important to have the idea that there's the temperature of the earth. There, I mean, there's no temperature of the earth, but in terms of the range of temperatures of the earth are generally those that human beings find to be too cold by a significant margin. And then the nature of warming is usually claimed to be something that occurs more at the poles, which is generally where people definitely want more warmth. And then I believe it's more at night. Is that right, Stefan? It's more at night? Yeah, and during winter, I think, is also right. a trend. Right, so it's generally the times that people want it. It's just important that we we not... I think there's just this model that okay, there's this perfect, like a, it's the single temperature and we're all experiencing it. And maybe this is plausible when we're indoors because we're controlling temperature. And then, oh, if that goes up three degrees, then it's just going to be hot all the time. Or just some, there's some kind of model like that that's going on. Like, how are we going to, how are we going to deal with that? Versus just in terms of temperature, that's the least worrisome thing in terms of it getting warmer. And you can talk about other things like sea level rise and what is that portend there and, that's a whole other subject that is exaggerated in all kinds of crazy ways. But I just want to break in everyone this idea that the the non-human state of things or the non-human influence state of things is in any way manageable or safe or stable or, anything, or ideal and you know, or the CO2 levels or the temperatures or anything like that and just recognize that, well, no, what's actually the actual fragile, beautiful thing is really the human ecosystem is in that, that the state of affairs that we have created to make ourselves comfortable with our surroundings, but that's overwhelmingly a human controlled thing. And in particular, I think we should be particularly worried about the part of the ecosystem known as the human ecosystem known as the electric grid, because that is, I mean, that may be, and that in the transportation system, I mean, those are so crucial and there's a lot of fragility to those. In uh, Patrick Moore, who's a friend of the show and somebody I admire a lot, one of the co-founders of Greenpeace, who's since become very rational. And he, he was on Tucker Carlson. I didn't see the appearance, but I saw that he got a lot of new followers from it, which was pretty exciting. And he, he you know, he, I, I think he's almost always dead on with his comments, one point he just made is, you know, when you're talking about 
getting rid of petroleum, that's the heart of the world's transportation and then and also agriculture. And that, you know, without cheap, plentiful, reliable transportation fuel, the cities starve. So that, that I just take as an example of the human ecosystem that we've built that sustains us in this incredible way, like Mother Nature never dreamed. But without that grid and without that transportation system and the fuels that power both of them very reliably and with a lot of abundance, then we have to live with nature. And there it's, you know, the issue is not, is it one or two to three degrees hotter? It's like, do we have the tools and do we have the fuel that we need to cope with any climate situation or any natural situation? Stefan, what's your next story? Uh, another sort of study, but this time it's a real lab experiment. So researchers have pulled CO2 out of air and turned it into coal, and they claim that this is an efficient process. So this is sort of a geoengineering, potentially geoengineering to pull out CO2 out of the atmosphere and store it. And the intrigue of this particular method, which uses a liquid metal catalyst uh, in a vessel of CO2 and then uh, electrifies that and then small flakes of coal come out of it. And the intrigue of that is that coal, of course, is a solid form of carbon um, and that makes it very easy to store it. So other proposals like uh, compressing CO2 into liquid form have various problems because they are sort of instable. You have to seal them underground very tightly and uh, make sure that they don't, uh, you know, break out and get into gas form again. So I my questions are, how efficient is this process really? So I could imagine something like super cheap nuclear power uh, providing the electricity and then, you know, creating CO2 into some form of coal. And uh, some people have called it renewable coal, which I think is nonsense because the process itself obviously needs to lose a lot of energy. Uh, you can't just reverse the combustion of coal and you know get out of this process uh, free of charge. So this, this is of course expensive, but it could be a potential uh, solution if CO2 by the end of the century turns out to be a real problem in the atmosphere. Yeah, I, I like, I like, sorry to jump in, but I like, I mean, there's something cool about turning it into coal. I mean, I agree much more than these other things, which they talk, you know, just storing it as a gas or something, just injecting it underground. These schemes seem crazy, but yeah, if you could, and then I've also heard other materials, but I like that, I like that you could turn it into coal as in a usable form of energy. And then we have lots of stuff that we know how to do with coal, but I, I particularly like the direction of this goes to the point about innovation being the, the only ethical way to reduce CO2 levels. And I generally focus on innovation in terms of having, you know, low carbon or no carbon sources of energy that are truly globally competitive so that can produce abundant, reliable energy that's affordable to billions of people. Uh, that, But there's also the perspective that it's really good to develop to develop the, if you're concerned about this kind of thing, to develop the capacity to economically extract it from the atmosphere. And then there's, if you have any promise with that and all of the huge uncertainty that you have with any ne significant negatives of 
rising CO2 levels, then it's actually a really good thing to wait in many ways and, and to say, okay, yeah, let's focus on these technologies. Let's focus on developing these capacities that have positivity to them anyway. Let's not compromise our standard of living. Let's in fact have as much prosperity as possible, which will also drive these kinds of innovations. And that'll enable us to create better nuclear power and then also better carbon capture if that's, or carbon dioxide capture, if that's actually desirable. And one thing connected to this, I really need to pull up the episode, but it's the episode with Ross McKittrick, where he talks about having certain, talking about the, the, my vague recollection of it, but it sounded really bright, was that he, he talked about having essentially people who are concerned about CO2 levels and people who are less concerned, having them agree upon, okay, if it reaches this level by this date, then we'll do X or something like that versus just having every year being confirmation that, oh, well, we should do this enormous thing, even though people like us, critical of those policies, can say, uh, well, that is a really extreme reaction to a relatively small temperature change. So I, I like this kind of thing as a kind of technological direction. But I think, Stefan, it sounded like you had another point as well. Yeah, so... Provided that we would gain control over the actual atmospheric CO2 concentration with this kind of technology, uh, this would raise a question, what level of CO2 do we want? So do we want to stop right here at around 400 parts per million? Do we want to go back to pre-industrial levels like 270, 280 parts per million, which, you know, decreases uh, photosynthesis productivity of plant life on the planet? Or do we want to get a little higher? So the, the question has never been really asked, I think, in public debate, like what would be the optimal CO2 level that we want to have to optimize human flourishing? Yeah, that, that is, I like asking that question in a, in a kind of detached way where you, where you just as if you had full control over it, because then, then you really need to consider, wow. I mean, you, from a certain perspective, you could say, well, wow, if we could just economically add more CO2 to the atmosphere, that would just make life so much richer on this planet. And then if it could be a little bit warmer, think of all the benefits of that. So it's, it's just fun to think about. It. And then you see, oh, wow, why aren't people talking about these things now? It, there, there is something about the way we put CO2 in the atmosphere now, which is that it is, it's a side effect. It's an, it's an inevitable byproduct of something. And, and in general, in the pursuit of mastery, we, we want to do that kind of thing less and less. That is, we, when, when we're changing our environment, we want to do so very deliberately. But nevertheless, there is still a question of, is this, if we could do this thing in isolation, would it be desirable or not? And to what extent? And there's at least a lot of, there's a strong argument that it would be desirable and that should at least be made, but it's not made because people have the premise that all human impact is bad because the perfect planet is the one that would exist had human beings never existed. Don, one more story from you. What do you want to talk about? Well, I want to continue in this theme of climate mastery because there are two different stories that I think really illustrated people taking seriously climate mastery and being proactive in uh, their ability to make the climate as livable as possible. And then uh, I'll also give the climate passivity award out for the state in this case that is being completely 
and uh, helpless in the face of climate. And so the first one actually goes to Miami. So th- this is, um, and when I say the first one, this is my patented climate mastery award. Uh, Miami faces real flooding challenges, I think, just given its natural landscape. Um, and so one of the things that they've been doing is they've been building resilience uh, against flooding and storm surges. And so just last year, they did a $400 million bond issue to finance projects related to this. And um, a kind of more specific concrete example was that the Florida Division of Emergency Management calculated that projects to reduce wind and water damage avoided $81 million in losses from Hurricane Matthew. This is back in 2016. Uh, and those projects only cost $19 million to carry out. So it's a pretty good return on investment in terms of insurance. And um, just some of what that involves specifically was raising buildings, improving drainage, buying and demolishing properties in vulnerable areas. So it was just this idea of like, we face some climate challenges and we are going to take action to deal with them rather than we are going to sit around waiting for people to cut off their sources of energy so that in a century, you know, we'll get hit with one fewer hurricane per decade or something. Um, This really contrasts to California, which I mean, basically has done the complete opposite. So the Wall Street Journal had a piece that where they point out that um, right now that California, if, uh, I haven't been out there in a while, Alex, but um, I, I guess you guys have been experiencing quite a bit of rain rather than the typical drought. And uh, so the Wall Street Journal was pointing out that the political class is only worried about drought when the water runs out. Thus, there isn't enough reservoir capacity in the north, which environmentalists oppose in any event, to store storm runoff during wet years like this one. When droughts come along, Sacramento resorts to rationing. The lack of storage and inadequate levees also raise the risk of flooding. If history is a guide, melting snowpack in the spring could inundate waterways and lead to mudslides that might be especially ferocious since last year's wildfire stripped slopes of vegetation. So it's just like everything, whether it's drought or flood, is just like coped with rather than planned for and improved upon. Yeah, that's definitely my observation in California. I've just been noticing just just noticing all the fresh water running into the drains and just thinking, and there's, they still have those be water wise kinds of signs, and like, oh, but it's just raining like crazy. And then you start to hear, oh yeah, but it's going to be too much rain. It's like, what, what species are you part of? Let's, let's actually figure out how to handle all of these situations and let's, let's double our resilience. Like let's be able to handle stuff that's that, you know, d- dramatic changes in rain. I mean, assuming we can do it economically, but just in, in general, there should be this can-do attitude. And when it comes to our environment, there's a can't-do attitude, and it's really just a, a don't-do attitude. It's don't do all of the things that we do to improve our lives now, just commit to not doing them, and then to doing these other things in the future that we, the Green Movement, promise will support, like solar and wind, even though we actually oppose them in all sorts of concrete cases, and we are known to oppose every form of industrial development. So this just this just mentality is is completely wrong. So I'm really I'm really happy that 
I'm really happy to, that we're thinking more in terms of climate mastery. And you know what? That can be part of 100% prosperity by 2050, the new campaign started on this episode. Okay, good stories, guys. Thanks for sharing them. As always, if you have any questions for the audience, I should say, as always, if you have any questions, comments, love mail, or hate mail, you can email us. I'm alex at industrialprogress.net. Don is don at industrialprogress.net. Stefan is S-T-E-F-F-E-N at industrialprogress.net. One thing I don't mention enough is I've got a really good mailing list that people like a lot, and it includes a weekly Wednesday email, and then also a 30-part or so energy clarity course that we uh, that comes out the first 30 or so Sundays that you're on the list, and people are really giving good feedback on that. So I wanted to encourage people to sign up for that. And also, if you have a company, send that link out to your employees. And it's alexepsteinlist.com. That's alexepsteinlist.com. Also, speaking of companies and other organizations, one great way to support the cause is if you have a high-level organization or know of any, uh, bring us in as a speaker. Bring one of us in as a speaker, or we have a number of other speakers. If you have any questions about speakers, email don at don at industrialprogress.net. Okay, good show today, guys. Next week, we will be back with more great topics. Until then, I'm Alex Epstein. This has been Power Hour. Power Hour. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of energy. Power Hour, the antidote to shallow thinking about energy issues.